If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And sitting in for Abby Dees, I'm Steve Pryor. Where the heck is Abby Dees tonight? She is traveling someplace glamorous. Well, tonight, in honor of World AIDS Day last week, which was different, December 1st, I'll share my conversation with Richard Berkowitz. Now, Richard is the guy who wrote the first safe sex pamphlet, How to Have Sex in an Epidemic, back in 1983. And I've got to tell you, in 1983, it was revolutionary. Oh, I know. Nobody knew anything in 1983. And Steve also talks with writer-director Alexander Therese Koenig about gender fluidity and her new film, Girls Lost. And thanks to our friends at Wolf Video, we'll give... Give you a chance to win your very own copy of Yay. the DVD. Yay, we're giving things away, not asking for money. And how often does that happen? We'll also remember LGBT icon Holly Woodlawn. The one-year anniversary of her passing is tomorrow. And we'll talk with the director live in studio of, and the two of the stars of the film, Kiss Me, Kill Me, which is also coming out on DVD this week. Everything's coming out on DVD this week. And you will also have a chance to win a copy of Kiss Me, Kill Me as well. You're kidding. Does it ever stop? <laughs> no, it does not. We are Santa's bag. <laughs> oh, my. But you know everyone's getting cold this year because Donald Trump wants to up the coal industry. Oh, I have to tell you, we decorated our tree with black balls and tears oh this my year. God. We really did. But first, before we go on, here's the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Jessica Andrea. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the two weeks ending December 3rd, 2016. Say what you will about him, you know, with women and Latinos and other constituencies, he hasn't flipped and he hasn't said anything. He hasn't screwed up on any LGBT stuff yet. That was gay California Republican Donald Trump supporter Charles Moran the night before the U.S. presidential elections. The operative word there may have been yet. Virtually every nominee Donald Trump has named so far for high-profile positions in his administration has a solid record against LGBT rights. Topping the list, of course, is his vice presidential pick, Mike Pence. The Indiana governor currently also leads Trump's transition team that includes staffing his administration. Pence is probably the highest-profile Christian conservative Republican in the country. Leading the rest of the pack is Attorney General nominee Jeff Sessions, full name Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. The Alabama senator has a notoriously racist and homophobic record. The suggestion that he become the nation's top law enforcement official has prompted an unprecedented letter to the Senate, which must approve most cabinet-level positions. 
from some 150 U.S. civil rights groups asking that the Sessions nomination not be confirmed. The groups include the Human Rights Campaign and the National LGBTQ Task Force. The letter notes that Sessions supported a proposed constitutional amendment defining civil marriage as exclusively heterosexual, opposed the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and opposed the 2009 law that added sexual orientation and gender identity to federal hate crime statutes. This is particularly disturbing, the letter says, at a time when there have reportedly been more than 700 hate incidents committed in the weeks since the election. The next attorney general must recognize that hate crimes exist and vigorously investigate them. Secretary of Education nominee Betsy DeVos donated $200,000 to the successful campaign to constitutionally ban civil marriage equality in her home state of Michigan. She and her wealthy family organizations have made hefty donations of $500,000 to the Anti-Equality National Organization for Marriage and $100,000 to the equally anti-equality group Florida for Marriage. Secretary of Health and Human Services nominee Tom Price has an anti-LGBTQ record to rival that of Alabama Senator Sessions. Price, a Georgia congressman, is a leading sponsor of the First Amendment Defense Act. Like a number of state laws, it's a national-level bill that would allow individuals and businesses to discriminate against people they don't approve of, i.e. LGBT people, based on sincerely held religious belief. National Security Advisor nominee Michael Flynn served in a similar capacity during Trump's election campaign. He's notoriously right of center, even for the military, and has made numerous Islamophobic comments. Flynn recently railed against the Obama administration for lifting the ban on transgender military personnel. Donald Trump's pick for Secretary of Defense, former General James Mad Dog Mattis, has opposed allowing LGBT people and women to serve openly in the military. President Barack Obama fired him in 2013 for being too hawkish on Iran. By law, Congress has to waive a requirement that the top civilian leader of the U.S. military must have been retired from the armed forces for at least seven years. Some Democratic lawmakers have already expressed opposition to that waiver for Mattis. Last but significantly not least, incoming White House Chief of Staff Ryan's Priebus led the Republican National Committee to its most anti-queer platform in decades. The convention-approved policy statement opposes a ban on so-called cure therapy for LGBTQ minors, maintains its opposition to marriage and adoptions equality, and supports so-called religious freedom laws. Priebus defended the platform earlier this year, falsely claiming that children raised by same-gender couples are more likely to be drawn to drugs and crime. That's News Wrap for the two weeks ending December 3, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Jessica Andrea. And I'm Michael LeBeau. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Also on the show this week, Two-Spirit Romance and Indigenous Issues Ignite Fire Song and Same-Gender Parents Share Family Secrets. World AIDS Day was December 1st. That was last week. And I don't know about you, but it really hit home this week. As I get older, I think about all the people who aren't with us anymore. I, there was one year I went to nearly 50 funerals. 
the mid-'80s. Well, you were in New York at the time, right? I was in New York, yeah. early, early-'80s. And then even in Orlando, my, two of my roommates died. Right. So it was horrible. But the thing about New York is, in the early-'80s, is the ideal of safe sex was just so radical. And I got the chance to talk to someone recently, Richard Berkowitz, who was the man who actually co-wrote the first safe sex pamphlet back in 1983. And did they just pass it out in the street? They did. But it was, and he was hated by the community for no. this. How dare you say it's our fault yeah. that we can prevent it? Yeah. Well, it no, I remember the, the early 80s. It, we knew so little. I can't even imagine anybody could compile a pamphlet. Well, he did it with, uh, with the help of his own doctor. Mm-hmm. Let's take a listen to that. A light bulb went off in my head, and I realized that there was a lot of ways to have pleasure that wouldn't involve any kind of risk for infections. So we started having this heated discussion. I mean, Michael said, well, isn't that great? You can whip and beat people without spreading AIDS. But Sonoma said, wait a second. There are ways to have sex that interrupt disease transmission. I remember thinking, interrupt disease transmission. I mean, it was visual, it was captivating, and it just completely propelled me. Richard Berkowitz, a gay S&M sex worker, turned AIDS activist in the 1980s, is the author of Staying Alive, The Invention of Safe Sex, and his life is the subject of the award-winning documentary, Sex Positive. The concept of safe sex is now a given, but it was not obvious or something the queer community was ready for in 1982. We came up with our safe sex guidelines at a time of incredible panic and paranoia and just all-out hysteria No one knew what the cause of AIDS was. The first patients that were getting sick were incredibly disfigured and incredibly grisly looking. And when the media started to report the epidemic, they actually showed up at an AIDS support group that I was a member of in 1982, and they walked out disappointed because there was no one disfigured enough for what they were looking for. So they actually started painting the first pictures of AIDS by hunting down the most disfigured patients. So when when you juxtapose these very disfigured patients that were showing up on TV reports with the fact that no one knew the cause of AIDS, that a new epidemic was emerging, that there was a new case being reported every day, and just panic and, and, and paranoia just broke out everywhere. So juxtaposed against that kind of climate, Michael Callan, the late AIDS activist and good friend of mine and my writing partner in the early days of AIDS, we both had the same doctor, Dr. Joseph Sonnabend, who we were realizing had spent many years as a lab scientist. And so he had opened up a practice in Greenwich Village to treat sexually transmitted diseases in the late 1970s. And with his background as a lab scientist and a microbiologist and virologist, he had an understanding about what was going on with AIDS that was probably deeper than most doctors would be able to understand. So he kind of realized from the practice he had, which was gay men coming to get treated for STDs on a regular basis, that it was his patients who had a history of anal STDs who were showing immunological abnormalities, but that his patients who had a history of only oral or penile sexually transmitted diseases were not showing immunological abnormalities. He came to realize that the most important thing we could do to curb the spread of AIDS was to protect bottoms, and that meant using a condom. So in conversations with me and Michael, he was saying, I know there's all this hysteria and panic going on. He said, but I've had 25 years as a lab scientist, and based on what I'm seeing in my practice with patients whose history I know, I don't think there's any reason for panic. I think that basically we need to tell gay men who are sexually anally receptive to use a condom for anal sex, and we can definitely curb the spread of this disease. So Michael and I began writing the first article, which was called We Know Who We Are, 
And it was very controversial because it was at the peak of the gay sexual revolution. So the idea that two people that hardly anyone knew of would come out writing an article saying, you know, maybe our lifestyle is fueling or driving what's going on was a really painful pill for sexually active gay men to swallow. And we had it published in the New York Native, and the publisher tacked on a subtitle, Two Gay Men Declare War on Promiscuity, which made the article extremely controversial and kind of made Callan and I pariahs in, in the gay community. By the time we, we finished writing the article explaining what we thought was going on, that AIDS was more complicated than a single exposure to a possible new virus, we were already coming up with ways to figure out how to have sex safely. But because we were so hated from the first article, when we finished our booklet, How to Have Sex in an Epidemic One Approach, the community hated us so much they didn't really want to deal with us, even though we were offering them a way for gay men to have safe sex and, and in some ways to continue the lifestyle that was killing us by intervening with a technological intervention, i.e. a condom. And it was very, very difficult getting our first uh, guidelines out there. In fact, it took two years after we published How to Have Sex in an Epidemic for the first safe sex campaign in New York City to be underway. And that was because of personality conflicts and political differences. And I think what we've lost by not knowing the early history of how safe sex began is that there really has been no spokesperson representing sexually active gay men. There are a lot of gay men who, who thought that AIDS would convince sexually active gay men to settle down into more monogamous relationships. And there's always been a sense of being willing to sacrifice the quote-unquote sluts by older gay men who wanted gay men to stop living that lifestyle that was not just killing them but making the community in general look bad. So I think we've really been missing the voice of people who defend promiscuity people who see it as a choice that gay men can and do make and that there are ways to be sexually active and protect yourself and your partner. And um, I think that's what got written out of history when Callan and I and Sonnenbein got written out of history. You know, to have very sexually active gay men speaking to very sexually active gay men rather than having gay men who wish gay men would settle down to monogamy telling sexually active gay men what to do. Just say no. Kind of, yeah. What about today? Studies say that safe sex isn't being practiced by the younger generation. Overall, I think gay men have actually been extraordinarily responsible in protecting themselves and their partners because even though the infection rate continues, no one ever stops to think about the infection rates that aren't, you know? And living in New York City and knowing sexually active gay men who are half my age and they're in their 20s, I can say that there's an awful lot of gay men who are being safe and are protecting themselves and their partners, but we don't measure that. We don't report that. We don't, we don't acknowledge it. You know, safe sex was 25 years old this past May, and I tried really hard to get anybody in the media to report that it was the 25th anniversary of the invention of safe sex, and no one was interested. So I think when people are doing something good, like protecting themselves and their partners and having safe sex, I think it's important to acknowledge it, to pat them on the back and say, you know something, it's not easy, but you know, a lot of people have been safe and we applaud you and we encourage you to keep on with it. And that voice has never been out there. I mean, one thing I say in the documentary is it's kind of shocking to me that people are always focus on a 1% infection rate, a 2% infection rate, but what about the infection rate that isn't? So I think a lot of gay men have been extraordinarily responsible, and no one's ever taken a moment to say, you know, good for you. But after eight years of Bush and the almost decimation of a lot of government-funded safe sex education campaigns, you know, something bad is happening. I think we've learned the hard way that abstinence campaigns are not really effective. 
And when you substitute abstinence campaigns, which we've learned are not effective, with safe sex education campaigns, which we know are effective, you know, the end result is what we're seeing now, which is rising HIV infection rates among all strata of uh, gay men, white, black, Hispanic, women. And uh, I'm hoping with the new administration, obviously a Democratic one, that we can get back to the work of doing sex education the way we've learned from history it works, which is grassroots, targeted, um, specific campaigns designed and created by the different communities at risk. In other words, Hispanic people do a safe sex campaign for sexually active Hispanics. The inner city black community designs their own campaigns that speak to their own people. Different communities need to create their own materials. They need to be funded, but they need to create their own materials that speak specifically to their own people. That's what's worked the best. I mean, in the late 1980s, we had porn stars and sex workers and peoples whose lives revolved around sex having a role in designing the materials that were made. And I think the materials of the last 10 or 15 years have been so unimaginative and so anti-sexual and judgmental. And there's a very sex-negative element to it. And I think people have just come to the point where they just tune it out. In the late 80s, when uh, safe sex education was at its best and HIV infection rates were at their lowest, the kind of materials that were being created, they were very erotic and very striking and pornographic. And the most important element that we've lost over the years is that they were celebratory. You have to celebrate. If you're going to tell gay men to use condoms for anal intercourse, you have to first celebrate the act. Otherwise, it sounds like you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Part of the feminist critiques of healthcare that was written in the 1970s, which had a huge impact on the writings of Michael Callan and I, documented 150 years of experts dismissing clitoral orgasm for women and the human misery that resulted from that. And when you read a lot of the safe sex materials of the last 10 or 15 years, it's almost like these people are oblivious about the existence of anal orgasm. If you're going to tell gay men to consider giving up anal sex, you're not promoting safe sex. You're basically undermining it because once people discover anal orgasm, they're not going to give it up for safe sex. And we have condoms, so they don't have to. Before the plague, who was Richard Berkowitz? I had always wanted to be a filmmaker. I mean, I spent my four years at Rutgers. At this, I spent more time at the school newspaper office writing about films with the hope of going to NYU graduate film school. And then my dream came true, and I got into film school. But I spent so much money making my films that I needed a one-year financial leave of absence to make some money to go back to school. And it was in that time that I stuck my toe in the water of sex work to see if it was possible for me to make enough money to get back to grad school by doing sex work in New York City. Right from the get-go, the first few guys that met me uh, were aware that I was kind of a left-wing activist, that I was really angry about... I was politically angry about what was going on in the country. I was young and impatient. I wanted the country to accept gay rights overnight. And as Ronald Reagan moved closer and closer to inhabiting the White House, my anger got even more... Got, more, got deeper. And the first few guys that hired me tapped into that anger by wanting me to play the role of an S&M top. And they bought me accoutrements, and they taught me what to do, and I took to it like a fish to water. It became an outlet, a creative outlet, actually, for the anger that I had in, as an activist that was turning into bitterness and cynicism because of the, the direction the country was moving in moving towards the right with Reagan. So I, you know, I was taught how to do what I did. And 
I guess I had the raw skills to be good at it because I loved what I did. And uh, I was responsible in the way I did it. It was fascinating to me. And the time, I certainly made enough money to go back to grad school, but the time to return came and went without my even realizing it because I became so wrapped up in being a successful S&M top for hire. Your background was used to discredit your message. Tell me about that. I think like blacks and Jews, whenever an, a group that's trying to be admitted into the mainstream of a society, I think there's always this <coughs> acute concern about how we're going to be seen. And I think that was part of the problem that happened when AIDS came along, was that people were worried that it was going to be used to deny us our rights. It would be used to push us back further into the closet, which, of course, you know, it did for many years. And I think people were really tortured by how to talk about AIDS in the mainstream media while worrying at the same time about how straight people would react to gay men, that this, would, this was bad for our image. But having been a member of the first AIDS support group in New York City and watching gay men in their 20s and 30s, you know, wasting away and dying and believing from, from the beginning that there was a way to prevent this, uh, I think part of the problem that Callan and I had was we were seeing the epidemic from the point of view of people who were, you know, dying, a really horrible death. And we didn't care about how it looked to the straight world. We first and foremost wanted to save lives. And I think a lot of people in the community were really upset by how graphic we were and how we were more concerned with saving lives than with protecting an image. And I think a lot of the people who stepped forward in the early days of AIDS as gay community leaders were more concerned about the image because maybe they hadn't seen firsthand what Count and I were seeing in the first AIDS support group. So there were a lot of conflicts and there was a lot of political divisions and it was very difficult to find ways to talk about AIDS in our country and especially to talk about safe sex because... It was very anal-centric, and that makes even a lot of gay men uncomfortable. But that's really, I think, the major risk and what we have to grapple with if we want to protect sexually active young people from getting infected. This has been a conversation with Richard Berkowitz, whose incomparable contribution to the invention of safe sex has never been aptly credited. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. That was a very informative piece. Thank you, Steve. I'm really amazed when I think back yeah. to the 80s and what now we're going through a lot of the same thing with people thinking it's okay now to have unprotected sex because of PrEP, but we're seeing a rise in all sorts of other STDs. Right, right, right. Yeah, once you get rid of that condom, Katie barred the door, as they say in the old days. Anyway, one anyway. of my favorite new Swedish films about magic, teenagers, and gender, Girls Lost, <laughs> will be released through Wolf Video and DVD and VOD on December 13th. And I sat down with the Swedish filmmaker for the 411. I'm Alexander Therese Koenig, screenwriter and director of Girls Lost. Which is in Swedish? Pojkarna. What's the movie about? It's a magical fairy tale about sexual awakening, but also self-discovery among three teenage girls. Is it hard to talk about the movie? Because there's so many things you have to be careful not to reveal. It is. But I can reveal that there are girls, <laughs> they're teenage <laughs> girls, <laughs> but that's about it. It's based on a well-known book. Yeah. Tell me about that. How did you decide to do this? I was approached by the producer who saw my uh, previous film, Kiss Me, and uh, he sent me the novel, and I loved it from the first time I just 
started to read it because it's so poetic and it's magical and got loads of realism in it. So the contrast between the magical realism and the fairy tale feeling of it offered a challenge that I really, really liked and fascinated me. What was the hardest part about adapting it to the screen? Finding the main characters and especially Kim, who's the main. When I came on board, I think the producers envisioned girls playing both male and female and I wanted it to be both male and female actors. So we have to give away at least something here that there are, how would you say it, doppelgangers? Yeah. In the film, male and female. Male and female. And the transition between the two cinematically was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? Was Do you have like a million dollars in special effects, or was this something you really thought out? Oh, yeah, there was a lot of planning and thinking to... Because that transition, when uh, Kim turns into a boy, it's never been done in a moving frame, only in a fixed frame. So technically, that was really difficult. So there was a lot of planning going into that, and the kids playing the parts that they were just real pros. Talk a little bit about gender fluidity, because that's a very central plot point. Yeah, it is. At the time when I was working on the screenplay, I was reading Judith Butler, she has a very interesting queer theory where sex and gender is not something that we are. It's something that we become, which means that we go back and forth between genders depending on how society views us and the kind of rules or whatever is created around us. So to me, I mean, that's fascinating, and I wanted really to explore that. And that was a tiny part of the novel, and I just really wanted to empower that. Wherever you fall on the LGBT spectra, there's something for you in this film or in this story that anyone can relate to or identify with. Which is very timely right now, I think. Yeah, it is. What do you want the audience to take away from this? I think I just want the audience to reflect and to think about being in a situation like that. We've been touring this film on festivals now for almost a year, and there's always a lot of gatherings afterwards, and people come up to me and talk about their experiences, and it feels like it's an important movie for so many people. What did they say to you? What jumps out? What do you remember most? There was a woman telling me, an older woman, that... This is the first film that she saw that actually, in a very accurate way, displayed how it is to feel transgender. She never saw anything like that before that so accurately just put the feeling and the tone of of how it is to be trapped inside your own body. This has been a conversation with writer-director Alexandra Therese Koenig. Girls Lost is a Wolf video release. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Such an interesting film. I know. Magic, teenagers, gender, Swedish. It has something for everyone, LGBT and beyond. You've hit all the bases, and you can own a copy of this, your very self, if you just give us a call. We're not pitching money. We are actually giving something away. So pick up your phone. For for free? For free. Yeah. Don't get used to that. You know this is KPFK, right? (laughs) No. Yes. This is just a freakish thing we're doing. Don't tell management. And the fun drive starts tomorrow, so this will be your last chance to get a free gift from Winslow Jones. Thank you. If you just call 818-985-5735, that's 818-985-5735, which spells KPFK. Now that's, if you want something free, you call what number again? It's 818-985-5735. Hmm. If you call that number tomorrow, they'll want money from you. Today, 
free movies. Free movies. It's like a portal to heaven. Well, we still have so much show to go. Yes, we do. More than more than I can even talk about. But coming up next in the next half hour, we have my first interview with Hollywood Lawn. Many, many years ago, tomorrow is the day, the one-year anniversary of her passing. And we also have live in studio and champing of the bit to get on the show, the director and at least one of the actors from Kiss Me, Kill Me, a very stylish, noirish murder mystery that takes place in West Hollywood. Very cool. We'll be right back. Don't go away. A Man Named Brady, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the ABC sitcom The Brady Bunch, father Mike Brady was portrayed by actor Robert Reed. Most of the cast members on set knew Reed was gay, but he kept it under wraps. He never talked about it either. After all, the show aired from 1969 to 1974, a time when being gay could end one's career. Florence Henderson, who played his wife on the show, later said that she knew the secret during their first on-screen kiss. In 1992, Reed died of colon cancer and lymphoma, but it was reported in the media that he died of AIDS. He had tested positive for HIV one year earlier, but had not advanced to full-blown AIDS. At his memorial service, some of his actual relatives were absent. But the Brady Bunch cast rallied around him as a family. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Claire van Lunen. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you, on KPFK 90.7 FM. Welcome back. You're listening to I Am Are You Radio. I'm Steve Pride. And I'm Wenzel Jones. The time is now 7.32. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the passing of a community icon and one of my very favorite people, Miss Hollywood Lawn. To commemorate her, I've dug through my archive to bring you the first interview I did with Holly probably 15 or 16 years ago. And it's still one of my favorites. Gender-bending pioneer Holly Woodlawn shot to fame in a 1970 Andy Warhol film called Trash. Cast as the offbeat girlfriend of a good-looking junkie, played by Warhol favorite Joe D'Alessandro, her debut was critically lauded. It was at the height of Warhol's popularity and the success of Trash thrust underground movies into the light, where they quickly became legitimized as independent films. Holly Woodlawn's performance is made all the more remarkable by the fact that in this film, made shortly after the Stonewall riot, she completes the job of leading lady with no allusion to her biological gender. Now, 30 years later, Trash has been remastered and re-released. I took this occasion to drop by Holly's West Hollywood apartment for a chat about Trash, Andy Warhol, and her walk on the wild side. Holly came from Miami, FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side I just wanted to go to New York, get out of Florida So I only had $11 to my name And uh, I took a bus to a little city outside um, uh, Atlanta called Brunswick 
where um, the bus driver threw me off the bus and uh, I there was a, a thunderstorm going on that night. So I, I seek shelter in this little motel on the side of the road and I was struck by lightning. Yes. And, and so the uh, proprietors of the motel gave me a free room that night and that's when I shaved my legs and plucked my eyebrows. And I, you know, I haven't been the same since. So the next day I stuck my finger out and started hitchhiking. A week later I landed in New York City and... Uh, Five years later, I met Andy Warhol. Well, actually, Paul Morrissey. He's the one that um, uh, filmed Trash. I was hanging out at Max's Kansas City where, well, you know, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, you know, all the Warhol crowd were, were hanging out. In 1969, that, that year, a lot of stuff happened. A Man in the Moon, you know, the Sharon Tate murders. I mean, Robert Kennedy, the Stonewall. Uh, so that was quite a year for, for America. And I was right in the middle. And they were shooting this movie, and I guess I, I was typecast as a lowlife. <laughs> Garbage-picking lowlife. No, but um, uh, he asked me if I would do a scene in the movie, and then that scene just like sort of like blossomed into like a co-starring role. And uh, Trash came out. Um, uh, I, I, was in, I was in jail for that, <laughs> for the premiere of Trash, but that's another story. <laughs> and I got these incredible reviews, and uh, the rest is history. And now, 30 years later, they're dusting me off and re-releasing it for the um, 30th anniversary. But uh, it's fun. It's fun to, you know, like, just see myself. 30 years later, it's like watching somebody else, you know. Good memories, you know. I was right in the middle. I mean, the vortex of all that stuff. I mean, you know, the underground Warhol, Studio 54, um, free love, drugs that were decent drugs. I mean, you know, not God. And still survived all that, all that insanity. Like a cockroach here, I feel already. <laughs> Tell me about the making of Trash. Trash was the first and, and, of course, the most notorious. I also did another one for Warhol, uh, another Morrissey film. I mean, everybody actually, you know, I have to get the record straight. Andy Warhol produced the movie. He just actually put his name to it. Andy was very big at that, just putting his name, you know, I mean, because he did not discover the Campbell soup can. But uh, he sure made a lot of money off of it. But Paul Morrissey was the uh, the driving force, the director he did everything, uh, you know, film, filmmaker, uh, except writing the script. There was no script to um, either Trash or, um, or Women in Revolt or any, or any of Andy's movies. Uh, but basically, what Paul did was just uh, he uh, picked people that had character that, you know, that were fascinating or, you know, had something to say or do on the screen and just uh, roll the camera. Paul would, you know, set up the scene. You know, like Holly in the scene, you know, you're having sex with a beer bottle because Joe won't go to sleep with you, you know. And I, of course, <laughs> being the true method actress that I am, went for it, you know. Ouch. Okay. Trash is on DVD. It's on video. It's back in the theaters. Are you making just tons of money? Oh, no, please. I, I almost choked on my Coke. Coca-Cola. Uh, uh, $25. Well, actually, for the whole movie, I made 125 because it was $25 a scene. And at that time, I just signed a release. I did. There, were, there was no contract. You know, meanwhile, the first couple weeks that Trash came out, it made several million. What made Andy Warhol special? You know, the whole thing, there was nothing, absolutely nothing about Warhol. I mean, Andy Warhol was as, uh, as transparent and as flimsy as tissue paper. It was the people around him. It was everything around him. You know, I guess that's his genius. He was a magnet, you know. I mean, all, everyone around him were the ones that were brilliant, 
You know, he was like no solar system like the sun where heat radiates out, you know. Andy just, he was like a black hole. Andy just went around saying, oh, how glamorous. Oh, do that. Oh, you know, I mean, he just agreed to everything, you know. And everybody else, I mean, of course, everybody was on drugs. He wasn't. And if he was, who wanted that drug? Little Joe never once gave it away. Everybody had to pay and pay. A hustle here and a hustle there. New York City is the place where they said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, Joe, take a walk on the wild side. Joe D'Alessandro. He, my co-star, he's, he was, in the, he was the, the, the stud in Morrissey's films. Flesh, heat, trash. Yeah. They weren't big for, like, large titles. He was a sweetheart. He was very nice. And, of course, in trash, you know, the, the, there's nudity, but it's not pornographic nudity. And, um, darling, that, that butt... That butt is held up by, well, youth, of course. <laughs> yeah. Holly, it's been 35 years since you took that trip, immortalized in the Lou Reed song, Walk on the Wild Side. How have times changed? When I was around in the 60s, that, if you did anything like that, you were arrested. I mean, there were, you know, there were laws and a lot of harassment. Now, you know, you go to New York, please. I mean, they're all over the place. It's like nothing. It's yawn, yawn, yawn. So what? So you wear a dress. And RuPaul, I mean, you know, it's like Ru's doing commercials for beer and makeup and stuff. I mean, you know. And uh, all those girls say that, you know, I was the groundbreaker, you know. Wonderful. Now now I need the money. <laughs> I'm tired of breaking ground. <laughs> I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do this has been a conversation with Holly Woodlawn. Trash is a jour de feet release coming to a theater near you. Holly Woodlawn's autobiography, A Low Life in High Heels, is, as they say, soon to be a major motion picture. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Thank you. It was a lovely Sunday morning spending it with you, Stephen. It's Hollywood Lawn. I know. How many legends have you spoken to through IMRU? Well, we got two of them on the show later, but let's talk about them. Well, yet. we do. We do indeed, sitting in front of us. But first, congratulations to our DVD giveaway for Girls Lost. It's Cecile Williamson, Sydney Grant, and Alicia Brandt. So congratulations. And there will be a further DVD giveaway. You're kidding. That's madness. I know. That's two in a show. That has never happened oh before. Oh, my gosh. I know. So get ready. So well, anyway, the queer noir thriller Kiss Me, Kill Me is being released on VOD and DVD this Wednesday. And joining us in studio is the director, Casper Andreas, who is also the man behind Going Down in L.A. No, Going Down in La La Land. That sounds dirty. I know. Violent <laughs> Tendencies which I called the Mindy Cohan film. Well, we all do. The Gay Musical. Which we love. Slutty Summer. Wait, I had that. You oh, it. it was a movie, too. <laughs> I just okay. had a slutty summer. This <laughs> Between love and goodbye, et cetera. My God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hello, Casper Andreas. Hello. Thank you for having me back. And joining him in studio is one of the stars, 
cultural icon, Jay Rodriguez. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi for the stray guy. That's I know. right. Here and, we are years later. And so much more than that. We're ready for our makeup and our close-up. <laughs> I know. I want my house redone at the moment. I'm like, geez, can you bring that back and just redo my place? Can't you just call them on the phone and I say, wish come I on could. over? They're also busy now. Please. Uh, well, Casper, Queer North Roller, what is Kiss Me, Kill Me about? Well, it's about a gay couple in West Hollywood, and um, the Dusty finds out his boyfriend is cheating on him, and uh, they have a, a fight, and then Dusty blacks out, and he when he comes to, he realizes his uh, his boyfriend has been murdered, and he's the prime suspect. So he has to figure out who, what actually happened, and he has to try to remember. He doesn't remember anything what happened. And, it's uh, he has to go on a, on a hunt for the real killer. And like all of your films, it's a who's who of LGBT acting world. Tell me who Dusty and the boyfriend are playing. You know, I think in this film more so than ever, I, I would say um, it's like a mad mad world. <laughs> I know it is. Uh, so Gail Harold, who played, um, uh, who was in in Queer's Queer Folk, Folk, yeah. of course, uh, he plays uh, Stephen. Um, one of the boyfriends, his uh, Dusty's boyfriend, and Dusty's being played by Van Hanses, who. Uh, uh, do the first Wait, gay kiss on I, national I, I, TV I as the, the world turns. Image again of him. Thank you. I know. Okay. Oh, yes. Awesome. So uh, the, uh, the first. He was also an East Sider. He was also an East Sider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The is now on Netflix. As is Kit Williamson. He's he's, he's also in the film. He was and, on Mad Men. Mm-hmm, he was on Mad Men as well. Um, and we have um, Jade Rodriguez, of course, <laughs> sitting here next to me. Shangela. Shangela, of In course, and out fantastic. of drag, which is actually kind of great because I know DJ wanted to act out of Shangela drag. And Do you have to pay double to get some... both those? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> I thought that was no. really cool. He's actually quite good as DJ and Shangela in the film, which is I great. thought DJ was really effective. Yeah. yeah. I, and I, I think he's an, I mean, I think he's a, a lot actor, of these dra- yeah, drag queens actor. are great actors mm-hmm. first. Yeah. Now, the question I had, because I don't often talk about credit sequences, but yours is so stylish. It so perfectly sets you up for we are going to, not the West Hollywood you think you know. How did, is that you, Is that the director's idea? I mean, who comes um, up with that you stuff? You know, that was actually, I, I can't take credit for that as much as I would love to because I love the opening credits as well. Oh. Uh, but it was actually writer David Micah Barrett who really had a vision for what he wanted for the opening credits. And uh, I was like, yeah, that sounds fine. You know, I never really worried too much about opening credits because... You know, I'm more worried about making the movie. But uh, but uh, he had the idea for it, and we had this graphic designer who's never done anything like that before. He, he did our, also our poster. He's a great graphic designer, but he's never done opening credits like that before. So so David worked him really hard to get him to do exactly <laughs> what he wanted. And I, and I kept approving. He said, oh, that sounds great. And David's like, no, 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 I want to do this. I want to do that. And I was like, okay, keep working with him. And then I was like, oh, my God. What's so great about the film, like you said, it's stylist. I mean, the whole movie is a murder mystery film noir. I grew up a big fan um, in the late 90s of a lot of LGBT movies that were very, you know, they were fun. They were kind of rom-coms, trick, edge of 17, uh, you name it, that kind of genre. And this is the first time I've seen anything in this lane, like this really stylized murder mystery film noir um, focusing on like you said, a gay couple. Right. So it's really just a great film where the lead couple mm-hmm. happens to be a same-sex couple, mm-hmm. which I think is part of the genius of it because it gives us something a little different um, than uh, what I think LGBT uh, cinema has uh, done. And it's it's interesting, I think, to me with, for that purpose. Mm-hmm. I think straight people would enjoy yeah. this film. Well, and then you play the detective, which is always pivotal in I a do. film like this. <laughs> Not the detective, but like the good cop detective. I know. I, you know, it was fun because uh, Kit Williamson, who I had done East Siders with, um, I guess was chatting with the guys and, and they needed to... 
uh, fill this slot of Detective uh, Noah. And uh, and so I met with Casper and David Michael Barrett. And, you know, it's one of those things where they're really sweet. They didn't mm -hmm. make me audition, which is nice. You just have a, a meeting. But then in your meeting, you're trying to, like, sound really detective-y because you can't <laughs> audition. Yeah. So you're trying to leave them with the impression that this is a role you could – uh, be believably pull off. Would, and would you have preferred if we made the audition? No, I mean, I don't know. You always feel like, I feel like meetings, you get so nervous because yeah. you're like, I hope I'm saying the right thing, you know? You, know, it's you interesting. have a yeah. vast resume and we introduced you as the yeah. Queer Eye Guy, but yeah. if you go to IMDb, so it scrolls and scrolls and scrolls. You've been in so many television shows I've over the years. I've been fortunate to, to, to work, in, especially I've been here 10 years and I've worked in a very, uh, a variety of grab bag of roles from playing a trans woman on Harry's Law to a murderer on Bones and I'm upcoming episodes of Grey's Anatomy and the magicians and it's been diverse but I think it's nice for in a, in a way because um, it's kind of helped me just continue to be a working actor not necessarily like the one who's like headlining in the way that you know would be like a series regular although I've been a series regular before it's just been really nice to be able to play a little bit of everything which is what my career has kind of done um, and this is a really great opportunity to showcase that certainly to a lot of people who love LGBT cinema. Well, I love though that you do play such a variety of roles. It's not like, oh, we need a J. Rodriguez type. I know. I'm I'm actually growing out of what I used to be considered like the sassy friend. Yeah. I don't go in for that anymore. I can't book it. Well, no, because when like, you first I'm show up type. in this movie, you think, oh, he's all grown up now. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I told someone the other day. I was like, hey, I'm all grown up now. You actually yeah. use that. But it's true. You know, I'm 37 and a lot has changed in the and since I, I left Queer Eye. And, and I like that um, Casper and Michael gave me an opportunity, uh, David Michael Barrett gave me an opportunity to do something different than the, accept, uh, this the expected. Was, this was the first time you played a detective, right? Yeah. I mean, it was really fun. First of all, A, like, mm -hmm. I forgot that I had that badge on. So, guys, I went to Ralph's. I mean, <laughs> we had a break. I went to Ralph's and I was shopping, and this guy let me cut ahead of him. I was like, oh, how nice. That's so sweet. And I realized my badge is on my belt. This is illegal. Like, I can't be walking around like this. But yeah, it was a cool opportunity. At least you didn't have your prop gun, right? That's true. That's true. I would love you to have been recognized. Oh, look, that's what happened to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he transitioned. He's in law enforcement now. <laughs> Thank goodness Page he's got six. a skill. Exactly. The leather community will be thrilled. So, Casper, if we could go cinematic here for a second. When I was watching it, it seems like you're paying homage to a lot of different films in this show because there was sort of a Rashomon thing going on where we see the same scene over and over, mm -hmm. and there's sort of a gaslight thing going on where it's like, I'm going to present the truth to you as I want you to believe it. I mean, how are you conscious when you're making a film of doing that, or is it just because that's your language and it's it's going to be recognized regardless? I think that... it was a conscious decision in, in, for this film, for sure. Uh, David, uh, who wrote the screenplay again, he he had, uh, in the script, it was already, you know, a lot of, he loves these type of films. You know, he always loved these type of films, and he wanted to reference um, a lot of, you know, he, he came up with scenes a little bit inspired by certain scenes. You know, we have a shower scene very very uh, psycho. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, so there was definitely moments like that that we that we uh, that you know he told me what inspired him uh, when he wrote it, and then um, I had uh, watched a lot of you know Hitchcock films and stuff, but I, I actually went up went back and I ended up watching a lot more and studying uh, various films you know to see how they did it. So certain scenes definitely inspired specifically about from from other movies you know from this type of genre which was so much fun for me to do because i have never you know i never made a murder mystery thriller you know no art film before so it was really exciting and it's great fun to see it. and you can see it yourself if you just give us a call at 818-985-5735 that's 818-985-5735 and you can have a copy of your own of kiss me kill me which we <laughs> shall now further discuss <laughs> great segue thank you 
I pride myself on my segues. What do you want the audience to take away from this film? Um, well, I, I think, you know, in, in the times we're living in, I think escapism is very important. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really fun, uh, fun um, you know, joyride uh, to go on. To I think it's a really enjoyable movie to just sit back and, rela- you know, enjoy and, and go on the journey. It's I a- saw it for the first time in Miami. And I would read the script, obviously, and shot it. But, you know, January would be almost two years that we shot it. So I'd kind of forgotten who did it. Right. So I was watching it with Casper and another cast member. And I'm like, couldn't remember for the life of me because <laughs> Don't it's tell so... Us. Don't I'll tell you, but it's so well set up where yeah. you're like, ooh, maybe that person did it. And then two seconds later, you're like, oh, it can't be that person. Like, it's really good. It keeps you guessing. But that's true of a lot of good movies, though. Mm-hmm. You've seen it a hundred times, and you think, I'm not quite sure how this ends anymore. Yeah, which is good, because we've gotten to a place uh, where we're a smart audience now. We can yeah. kind of predict endings of things. Yeah. And I think this is one of the, the movies you actually can't. Now, one thing I was curious about, um, because a, a pivotal scene takes place at Pink dot. Mm-hmm. Did did they sign off on that? Did they know? We went in there and we did. Uh, we shot people and stuff without them knowing anything about it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? It's Pink no, Dot. We, we definitely got permission. Uh, it was actually quite tough because Pink Dot was written into the film. It's such an iconic West mm. Hollywood place. So so. Uh, David, I don't think necessarily thought we were actually going to shoot there when we he wrote it in the screenplay. But then we, I went there with my cinematographer Reiner Lipsky, who I absolutely adore. He was great. Uh, and so um, he, you know, he made the, the gave the film really the look that it mm-hmm. has. And we went into Pink Dot, and he's like, and he was like, oh, this is perfect. You know, mm-hmm. he, he fell in love with it too, and you know, it's so. Such a weird-looking place. Oh, that you know, so iconic WeHo. Iconic, yeah. and and so uh, the colors, the pink and light blue, yeah. and so we kind of we have to shoot there, and yeah. and they kind of extorted us a little bit in terms of financially. We spent basically half our location budget for the entire filming at Pink Dot. Yeah, but uh, but we really wanted sh- to shoot there, and you know, it's they they allowed basically they allowed you know characters to get yep. killed in their stores so I mean of course that yeah. we were very grateful to them for them for that when, the universe that your characters exist in it seemed to break down to the binary of gay men are silly and irresponsible and lesbians are super reliable I mean how I just discussed that because it, I, I just wondered why <laughs> um I got thoughts. Well, no, I mean, I think that these lesbians in our film believe they are reliable. They certainly like to talk Mm. about, and they certainly cast in the trailer. You can see they're, you know, they're gay men. But I think there's also like, you know, there's a vast amount of uh, like different types in the movie. And Mm. I think the interesting thing is I don't think I've ever seen the behind the scenes of a big gay uh, TV producer, which one yeah. of the characters is, Gail Harold character. Um, and it's kind of fascinating that we live in this wor- world where people are chasing this kind of fame monster. And there's um, some surprises in the movie in terms of how people identify in the beginning of the movie and how right. some people evolve toward the end of the movie. <laughs> wink, wink. Well, and your co-detective is the one who rags on gay men worse than anybody. Oh, yeah. She, yeah, we she's have actually, a big lesbian. Yeah. We have three <laughs> lesbian characters in the film. It's not just a, a film for the boys. And right? she, had just, she had just done Whitney at that time, the Whitney movie in a lifetime. Right. Playing Whitney Houston's rumored lesbian best friend. Oh, did she? Yes, yes. but now she's on The Get Down on Netflix. Yes. Yolanda Ross. Yolanda Ross. Yes, she's amazing. Her. She is so, I mean, I'd never worked with her before, and the first day we bonded so quickly. She is so good. Like, I had never heard of her. And then the, you you told me, Casper said, you're going to love her. And just watching her work, she's got like a, this something always going on behind her eyes. You know, the character's coming from somewhere. 
It's really remarkable to watch. And she was also playing a detective for the first time, I think, right? Was she? She seems so authoritative. I know, but yeah, she's the... Like, I was not supposed to be the one who'd been seasoned, the seasoned detective. I was supposed to be a little like the rookie cop. But she was so tough, I kept trying to match her. And (laughs) Kes was like, relax. (laughs) Easy, Columbo. Like, you know, settle down. I did say that. I wanted you you guys to be different, you know. She's the really tough one. Because I was trying to match her so much because she's so intense. (laughs) I have to make a quick announcement really quick for Michelle Marie, who's answering the phone in the master control room. That all of those copies are gone. Oh, it's such a response! Thank you so much, everyone, for calling in. Enjoy but you can film. see it at the glamorous opening, which is coming up yeah, real soon. Tomorrow isn't it? at the Crest in Westwood, and tickets are still available at crestwestwood.com, or you can click on the Kiss Me Kill Me Instagram page or Facebook page, any of the social media. Mm, video on demand. You don't even have to use your VCR anymore. That's right. This anymore. week, make it a date night with your special someone. And you this can... is this is a movie that, although it's got a gay sensibility, there's a queer sensibility. I'm sorry, yep. there is. But this is the movie I take my best straight friend to and yeah. she'd enjoy it just for the noir for the mystery yeah. Yeah. I think so I, it's not you know we kind of made a conscious decision to make it um, you know the film is about the the mystery of, of this kill it's not like you know it's not it's it's definitely it's a sexy film but it's not uh, you know there's really no blatantly right. sex scenes and stuff I tried I knew, well, thank <laughs> you. tried to get one in there because I knew when the two men got in the pool I thought yes it's finally happening <laughs> no that's oh. the sequel guys it's <laughs> Noah Santos and you know honestly there wasn't enough time you know we need to, there's so much story going on yeah. that we have to well speaking of there. time yes segue, thank you so much Kevin. <laughs> right. yes thank you we, we are out of guys. time that's it for tonight our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer Steve Pride our director Michelle Marie Gilkison board op Federico Garcia and our Rainbow Minute Producers Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imeradio.org and follow us on Facebook at imeradio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon if I'm awake. The KPFK Fun Drive begins tomorrow. tomorrow. And now more than ever, we need your help. We so do. join us next week when we'll be in conversation with Kate Kendall, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. We'll close with a song from Richard's co writer on that first safe sex pamphlet, an extraordinary artist we lost to AIDS in 1993. Here is Michael Callan performing. Love don't need a reason. Good night. night. If your heart always did what a normal heart should do, if you always play a part instead of being who you are, then you might just miss the one who's standing there. So instead of passing by, show him. Instead of asking why, why me and why you, why not we too? Cause love don't need a reason. Love don't always rhyme. And love is all we have for now. What All the madness that we're taught Never questioning the rules That we're living lies We bought so long ago How are they to know It's not who's wrong or right It's just another way I don't want to fight But no, I'm gonna stay
What we don't have is time.